Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening. This is Root of the Issue, Sycamore Institute's inaugural podcast. Each episode will look at a current issue facing America's foreign policy community. As an undergraduate-run think tank, this podcast series will explore these situations from the perspective of undergraduates. I'll go ahead and introduce myself first. My name is Benjamin Brott. I'm uh, a junior at American University. We're all at American University. Uh, I study mostly national security um, in the Middle East. So some of my um, focuses are defense policy, um, irregular warfare, uh, new technology, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, I'm actually, I'm originally from New Orleans too. So uh, Josh, do you want to take it next? Sure, yeah. Uh, thanks for having me. And very excited to join this podcast. My name is Josh Loizel. I am from the small town of Holden, Massachusetts. Um, I study U.S. national security and foreign policy in East Asia, so similar to Ben. I take a focus on a lot of the military developments within East Asia, um, as well as the uh, foreign policy issues and the relations between the three major East Asian uh, nations of Japan, Korea, uh, both North and South, and um, China. I guess I'll take it next. Um, my name is Lola Macy. I am from a small town in California called Santa Barbara. Um, I am both an undergraduate and a graduate student at American University, and I take a particular focus to Latin America and security studies in Latin America and the Caribbean. Um, I particularly focus on transnational crime issues and non-state actors like terrorists, cartels, gangs, any sort of non-state actor that interacts with private militaries. So um, sort of small actors like that. Uh, Christopher, off to you. Sure. So my name is Christopher Trask, though I do go by uh, CJ for short. I am from the beautiful suburb of Maplewood, New Jersey, which is about 40 minutes outside of New York City, uh, 30 if you take the train. And I am also an undergraduate here at American University, like everybody else. And my focus throughout the rest, throughout my academic career so far has been on, I've been studying international relations, but more specifically Eastern Europe. I focus on um, both the economic side of things. So I like to, I like to do a lot of uh, research and work in the sanctions regime that goes on in Eastern Europe between the United States and Russia and how that impacts a lot of these countries and also democracy promotion in Eastern Europe. So focusing on post-Soviet states and how they're trying to emerge from the collapse of the Soviet Union, as well as uh, the security policy of Eastern Europe. So I focus a lot on uh, NATO, its deterrence policy, its its force posture in, in, in the Eastern Europe, uh, you know, uh, flank. And so my focus has heavily been in on sort of the Russian area studies sort of world um, over there in Eastern Europe. And so I'm very excited to be part of the podcast and uh, looking forward to getting started. All right. Yeah, that was a great section. Of, that was a great segment of introductions. And I guess I'll get started with a little brief historical segment comparing um, our week of our first week topic, which is Olympic sanctions and if they actually do anything. So a hot topic currently is the Beijing Olympics and whether diplomatic sanctions such as what the United States are doing and that Australia are doing and a whole bunch of other countries around the world, are they actually gonna do anything? Are 
to sending political representatives or to not sending political representatives to a major international event actually matter? Does it impact international relations in any way whatsoever? So there was another event in the 20th century that had a ton of scrutiny, like a ton, and that was the 1936 Berlin Olympics. So the summers, this summer's Beijing Olympics are already steeped in politics, but the atmosphere now is almost nothing like the politically charged 1936 Olympics that were hosted by Adolf Hitler in Nazi Germany. Boycotts, racial and religious strife, and international intrigue plagued the world's most prominent festival of sport. The Berlin Games became a powerful propaganda tool for Nazi Germany as it tried to make its brutal treatment of Jews, political opponents, and others seem benign. The Nazi Olympics also helped Germany cultivate an atmosphere of appeasement from the rest of the world as Hitler prepared for conquest and war across Eastern Germany and the West. U.S. diplomats warned that the games would give Hitler a propaganda boost as he rearmed in defiance of World War I treaties. Prominent Americans rallied at home in defiance of this. Even some athletes and Olympic officials joined for a call of the boycott. They cited Germany's purge of Jewish athletes, a clear violation of Olympic rules. The Nazis seemed to relent and tried to quell the controversy. Olympic organizers, businessmen, and politicians were invited to Germany for sanitized visits. They witnessed no strife. They spoke with happy Germans and were promised that the games would be open to all. A carefully constructed and accommodating tone was developed. This is not so different from the current situation in China. Sanitized visits are super common. I mean, that's the case in multiple countries around the world right now, especially those with extremely controlling governments. But again, back to the, back to the 1936 Olympics. Participation in these games must not be construed to be an endorsement of the policies and practices of the Nazi government, said Avery Brundage, leader of the American Olympic Committee and the anti-boycott forces. Measures have been adopted to ensure that there will be no violation of the fundamental principles of fair play and sportsmanship or the Olympic standards of freedom and equality to all. Now, this isn't too different from what is currently happening within the international realms surrounding the upcoming Beijing hosted Olympics. Multiple human rights groups and US lawmakers have called on the Olympic Committee to postpone the games and relocate them unless China ends with the US has deemed genocide against the ethnic Uyghurs and member, members of other Muslim minority groups. Asked whether China would consider a diplomatic boycott of the Olympic games in the United States, President Art Zhao said that the US boycott has damaged the foundation and atmosphere of sports exchange and cooperation on the Olympics which he likened to lifting a stone to crush one's own foot. He called on the states to keep politics out of sports, saying that the boycott went against Olympic principles, which is hilarious because sports and politics have almost always been intrinsically linked for the entire history of the Olympics and almost every major sporting event for written history. Greece, the civilization who began the Olympics, has had many of their city-states boycott Olympic events because of other things city-states have done or done to piss off other city-states. And sports and politics have always been linked. And it's ridiculous that people are saying, get sports out of politics, get politics out of sports. No, they're linked. Anyway, the larger that the coalition of countries gets behind the boycott, the more powerful it can become. 
but it's never going to be majorly impactful. Monetary censors will feel, or monetary sponsors will feel the brunt of the punishment from this boycott. And unfortunately, those sponsors are mostly all based in the US anyway. So the punishment from this is going to fall on the sponsorship of the Olympics regardless. And that's just going to fall on the US. China's going to feel very little heat from this. That's it for me. Sure. Um, I think it's important to, when we're talking about these types of things, to look back at the history of Olympic boycotts, especially in the context of the modern Olympic Games. So like you mentioned, you know, Greek city-states would, would not go to the Games because they were pissed at something else. So Athens was pissed at Carthage, so they didn't go, and everybody was mad at each other. And, and that is true, but it's kind of hard to um, make that an apples-to-apples apples comparison when you talk about the modern world. So generally speaking, today, though, it is, it, it is informative. You know, today, with the start of the modern Olympics, I think 1896 was the first modern Olympics, and it was held in, in Athens, Greece. Um, there have been plenty of boycotts that have happened, and, and pretty much every year there's one country that doesn't go for whatever reason. Um, and, and that usually doesn't matter. I mean, you can go back into almost every Olympics Games and some country was mad at either the host country or was mad at another country that was going. And, you know, sometimes they'll boycott specific events within the Olympics. They'll go, but they're not going to compete in the swimming because ah, they're mad at the swimming committee. Um, and so that happens. But there have only been a few times in, in, in world history where there has been a large scale concerted boycott on the part of many, many countries to, to try to affect some sort of policy of the host nation or of another nation going. So there was obviously the 1936 Olympics where there was a huge discussion of the boycott um, ended up not really happening in, in any serious form. The United States went obviously. And in fact, our participation in the games was arguably more impactful than it would have been had we not gone when Jesse Owens shattered a lot of the racial stereotypes that were going on um, of that time by absolutely smoking everybody in the, the, the track uh, competitions. And so that, made a hell of a lot more of a difference to a lot of people, a lot of average people who are looking at that, um, to see a, a black American man shatter the notion of Aryan superiority on live television. Um, and so you can make the argument that had we boycotted that and, and, and made it look like we were afraid and we didn't want to send our athletes to compete against the superior German ones, that it would have had a different political uh, impact. And so next boycotts actually happened in the 70s. So there was a lot of boycotts in between, you know, countries wouldn't go. But the next, the next serious boycott was in 76, when almost every African country didn't go to the 1976 Olympics. Um, in, not necessarily because they're mad at the host country, but because they were mad at um, New Zealand's participation. So I believe the Olympics that year were being held in Montreal and New Zealand was obviously going to participate. And at the time, New Zealand was sending a, an, an all black rugby team to tour through South Africa. And many African states uh, viewed that as a tacit acceptance of the apartheid regime. And so uh, they didn't they didn't want to compete in anything where the uh, New Zealanders, where the Kiwis were were competing as well. And so they boycotted and it sent a message and people talked about it. And it definitely forced the prime minister of Canada, Trudeau at the time, uh, into some awkward conversations, into some weird diplomatic situations. And he had to go and haggle stuff out. But obviously it didn't change the course of the history. And um, I, a lot of people aren't even aware that African countries boycotted the Olympics at that time, because especially in 76, where this was only about 10 years removed from the major decolonization efforts, these countries were not particularly powerful. They were not particularly relevant 
um, in especially in the Olympic sphere. Um, and so their presence or, or lack thereof was really not that big of a deal. Um, 1980 was obviously the next big um, Olympic boycott. And that was where the United States uh, and its Western and a lot of its Western allies refused to go to the 1980 Olympics in uh, Moscow. So at the height of the Cold War, this is right in the aftermath of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Um, the United States said, nope, not gone. Sorry, screw you. And so we stayed home and we convinced a lot of our allies to do it. And it was a huge black eye for the Soviet Union. And it was very embarrassing for the Soviet Union. It did cost them money, obviously, because the Soviet Union was very much counting on large amount of international press, large amount of international trade and people coming in and spending money at the Olympics. Um, and so that was a black eye and it hurt them. It didn't obviously cause them to collapse, but a lot of these are not about necessarily uh, effectuating policy on a, on a specific level, but also just, a, but mainly just about pissing another country off and giving them a black eye internationally. And so um, it certainly succeeded on that front. And the Russians were pissed, the Russians were embarrassed, the Russians were angry. Um, and the United, when the United States held the Olympics four years later in 1984, when we held them in Los Angeles, they didn't go. The Russians and their allies stayed home, though obviously uh, it was a little bit different of a situation because most people saw it as a petty sort of refusal to go, you know, to join. It was seen more as a tit for tat and an angry sort of um, petulant, childish sort of response to our boycott. So it's kind of like, oh, you boycotted me, I'm going to boycott you. Um, and most people divorced it from whatever the political ramifications were. And so it wasn't as successful. Beyond that, there have been boycotts. People haven't gone to things. But 36, 76, and 80, and to a lesser extent, 84, are the largest examples of, of Olympic boycotts for political reasons um, since the advent of the modern games in 1896. Yeah, thank you, CJ. What a great contribution. That was really fabulous. Uh, ben, Josh, either of you? Yeah, I mean, just going off of... Uh... What CJ said, uh, the 1980 Olympics, I think, was the largest boycott um, besides maybe the 36, um, but the largest, you know, in very recent history. And like has been said, uh, was not effective in changing policy. It only really um, hurt Moscow financially. Um, and, and I don't even know the extent to which it really did that, uh, which brings us to today to China. Uh, is it going to be effective on a much smaller boycott uh, with Lola, you mentioned a, a larger coalition um, of allies or a growing coalition of allies, U.S. allies, uh, but that coalition is not quite formed. We're still missing a lot of key allies. Um, you know, Germany, South Korea, France are the ones that come to my mind uh, first who are not boycotting this. Um, so, you know, would a smaller boycott be more effective it seems unlikely to me personally but yeah I'll, I'll jump in with a with a few remarks that i've managed to come up with as we discuss this and i think there's some important things to to note when talking about uh the olympics and i think um sorry uh chris had gotten uh on this with his his points and that is um the Olympics is not about affecting policy effectively. It is not done in a manner, and it can't really, um, to drive a nation to change its policy. In fact, it is more, especially we've seen in the more modern era, um, it is about diminishing the stature of a state because of a particular issue or just drawing attention to it. And in often cases, um, it is more the latter of drawing attention to it. Um, 
some nations have actually been quite effective in avoiding issues or changing the light of certain issues. The big one that comes to mind for me was the joint Korean team that we saw uh, a couple Olympics ago. I'm forgetting uh, which one that was, but it was a big statement to have both athletes from South Korea and North Korea under a joint unification flag compete in the Olympics. And that's a big statement policy-wise to the world on an issue that a lot of nations walked into very concerned um, as South Korea has held a number of Olympics and uh, one of the very first ones that they had, uh, there was a number of um, incidents or, and or near attacks by the North Koreans because of the international community's support of a South Korean held uh, Olympics. And then a few years later, as we've seen, uh, there's a joint team. Um, I think the other thing that we might start to see uh, within this sphere, especially with Beijing, and it's already kind of on full display, um, is just how we tackle um, our boycotting. And by our, I mean, you know, Western powers and the United States' point of view uh, of this boycott. A lot of attention is put on Xinjiang, which of course is utterly important, right? That's one of the main bases for a lot of Western countries not wanting to go to um, this uh, Olympics this year. But another one that I'm genuinely curious about to see from China's perspective um, is on behalf of Taiwan. Uh, and Taiwan is a uh, recognized member of the Olympics. They are called um, the Chinese Taipei, which is already a statement in of itself, right? That is a show of Chinese and uh, CCP, when I mean Chinese, exertion of power over um, labeling of certain things. Uh, and if uh, China plays its card right, which it often has, and it's often played the political game a little better than certain Western powers. Um, I would not be surprised to see potentially a Beijing calculated response to Western powers dialing back their support for the Olympics and, and posturing in that way and Beijing uh, exerting its own force. Um, and I'd be very curious to see if, if Beijing would uh, take any calculated measure like that, uh, perhaps targeting a, a Taiwanese um, group of athletes are not even letting them compete. That you just opened up a whole can of worms. Um, reminds me of the, the 2014 um, Sochi Olympics, you know, uh, the annexation of Crimea. Uh, before, I'm sure Lola and CJ will want to talk about that. But before we do that, um, you said that the, the purpose of this diplomatic boycott and, and boycotts of the Olympics in general are to bring attention, bring light to issues. Um, and I, you know, I certainly agree that that would be more effective than, you know, policy change. Um, but still with, you know, China, you know, the reason that the U.S. has said that we're participating in this diplomatic boycott is to bring attention to human rights issues. Um, but I wonder if that's even really necessary. Um, you know, a lot of China's more negative policies, uh, you know, on human rights side and, um, you know, diplomatic side, financial, Belt and Road, the whole, you know, shebang of, of China's what it does, uh, I feel like is already bringing it negative tension. Um, you know, even its response during COVID, uh, it, it had the opportunity to really, you know, um, do something and expand its influence, uh, but it did not. It, it sent out, you know, faulty medical equipment and bad vaccines and kind of 
hurt its reputation a lot. Uh, and that's been happening a lot recently with China. So I, I don't know if the boycott is really even effective or if it just kind of makes us look, you know, like, like, I guess the bad guy. I think the way I would view it is it depends on how the boycott would be effectuated. So it depends if it's a diplomatic boycott, if it's, if it's a media boycott, if it's a full-blown, we're not sending anybody, we're going to get all of our allies to not send anybody. Um, those each have different ramifications for the way that the Chinese interpret it. And, and quite frankly, that's what it's largely about. And it's about signaling to other countries to say, hey, we're not going to let the Chinese smack us around and tell us what we can and can't say or what we can and can't do, right? If we send our allies, we send our, our athletes and they're, and they're talking about you know, Xinjiang, or they're talking about Taiwan, or they're talking about any of those things, that's a smack in the face to China to say, hey, we can come to your country, talk smack about your country, and, you know, and, and call you out for the things that you were doing. And, and you can't stop us, because a lot of the times, China gets off and, 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 and it gets this sort of aura of invincibility, when it smacks little countries around for saying things that it deems to be out of line. So Lithuania says, oh, I think Taiwan's a country and China brings the hammer on them. You know, it's like they're smacking around some tiny little country and everybody else, right? Even if they're not so tiny, looks around and says, ah, I don't want anything to do with that. You know, I'm gonna leave that alone. And so to have the United States be the one to say, no, 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 no. You're not gonna smack us around. You're gonna, we're, we're gonna speak truth here. We're gonna sound like Kamala Harris. You know, we're 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 gonna we're gonna we're gonna say what we think. We're gonna be honest about what's going on. You're not gonna tell us what we can and can't say. We have our media apparatus that is just as powerful as yours, and so that signals to other countries that said to say, "Hey, look, you're gonna be backed up when you think about this stuff. When you're talking about, you know, Xinjiang. When you're talking about Taiwan, it's not going to be Lithuania or Bulgaria against China. It's going to be the rest of the world." in a unified front against China. Now, does a diplomatic boycott say that? I'm not sure, especially if that diplomatic boycott was reserved to the U.S. and its, you know, little kind of lackeys, right? But if that's at least how it's interpreted, right? But if you were to get a large-scale diplomatic or athletic boycott that wasn't just the United States, you know, the U.K. and Germany or something like that, but was the Western world, was a significant number of democratized countries, was countries that China is interested in kind of putting its little fingers in, and they say, hey, no, we're out, that sends, in, that sends a strong message. And that sends a message to China, especially in the context of Chinese culture, which is very, very sensitive to perceived slights, to dishonor, to you know, um, disrespect, and things like that. And to just say, bah, screw you, we're not going to your Olympics, You've invested all of this stuff in, you've invested, you know, probably billions of dollars, you know, in bribes to the IOC and in building the, the, uh, the, the stadiums themselves. Um, you've invested all this money and all this time and eh, means nothing to us. So screw you, we're leaving and we're leaving because you suck. That or you know, to a more diplomatic message, you know, that, that sends a, a message to them. That's an embarrassment. That's a black eye on them, right? That makes them look kind of weak and, and, and all that stuff and try to, for the last hundred years has wanted to make sure that it doesn't look weak. It's the one thing that the country does not want to be seen as. It doesn't want to be seen as weak, doesn't want to be seen as being at the mercy of the West, right? Dating back a hundred years to the Boxer Rebellion, right? They don't want to be looked like they're getting smacked around by the West. And for the West to say, mm, screw you, we're gone. 
that goes right in the face of everything they've ever wanted to do. That boycott, though, only matters, and that message of screw off only has an effect to a to a Chinese citizen to feel very ah is it's only it's only effective if it's a large scale significant boycott either diplomatically or athletically that takes place across the West across countries that aren't perceived as being political lackeys of the United States, right? And so if the U.S. gets you know its Western allies plus Brazil, Mexico, Peru, you know, Namibia, and that, you know, to, to pull out, that says something different than if it's just the U.S. and the Brits saying, screw you, we, we don't like you because whatever. Yeah, I, I fully agree with almost everything that CJ just said. Um, I, China has invested hundreds of billions of dollars into Africa and Latin America in the last 30, 40 years. And that's been the real focus of, and like, just like CJ just said, Xi's focus in the last, in, in his entire presidency, or I guess presidency is the proper word, but it is more than that, um, has been to make China not, to make China feared and to make China extremely strong and to make China a true rival to the Western world. And if it was just Western countries pulling a diplomatic boycott, that doesn't mean anything to China. That's just another turn of history. That's just another version of the Western states going, eh, Soviet Union, who cares? We're not, you're not coming to the Olympics. Eh, we're not coming to your Olympics. Eh, whatever. Just China's another Soviet Union. Eh, whatever. That doesn't matter. So I, if if the U.S. and a whole bunch of Western countries didn't send their athletes, that would be a bit of a bigger slight because there's a ton of athletes. That's a ton of money. That's a ton of national pride for China to face those athletes. That would mean a lot more. But again, Western countries aren't going to do that. These athletes want to compete. Again, that's a source of income for these countries we're not going to just not send our athletes to these countries. We're not going to just pull a full boycott from the Chinese Olympics. We're going to send our athletes. So a diplomatic boycott makes the most sense for us. That doesn't mean anything to China. So yeah, like CJ said, we need to have almost all of Latin America, almost all, a ton of African countries that China's been sending all of their money to and just go, hey, all of you guys also have a diplomatic boycott where you guys pull all your athletes out of these Olympics. That means a ton. That sends a message. That would make a giant impact on impacting China's behavior, especially on the, on the issue of Taiwan, because that's the true foreign policy issue that China's been trying to get at. All right. Well, my general academic focus is on Latin America, so I guess I'll speak to an example that's occurring there between China and Ecuador. So over the past 10 years, China has dumped an enormous amount of money and energy and diplomatic efforts into Latin America. Um, a specific example occurred in 2020. Well, Multiple efforts have occurred since 2016 between Ecuador and China, but the specific instance that I'm talking about right now occurred in 2020. Uh, China went to the Ecuador administration and went, hey, all we want you to do is recognize Taiwan as a state, and in return, we will give you 
a ton of money to build a new power plant as well as more infrastructure and our own technology to create a more advanced surveillance system for your own citizens as well as to increase your policing power and advance your military. Ecuador said yes almost instantaneously and here we are. Ecuador no longer recognizes Taiwan as a sovereign state. They recognize Taiwan as uh, part of China. And yeah. So if all of these Latin American, all of these Latin American countries are starting to recognize Taiwan as just part of China, then you have none, no support. For Taiwan is a, Taiwan is its own legal state in the United States' own backyard. So then China just feels it can do whatever it wants and it has a ton more leverage. And then you, you just end up in this escalating conflict between the US and China. And anyway, sidetrack, but CJ is right. Diplomatic boycotts don't mean anything unless where China's money is being spent isn't being targeted. So Diplomatic boycotts would be effective if Africa and Chinese countries would be the ones actually making the difference, which is counterintuitive because those countries aren't necessarily the most powerful ones. But in China's eyes, those are the ones that are most meaningful right now. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in with uh, a few remarks off of off of those um, and not in necessarily disagreement, but I think a, a cautionary point that is. Uh, important to note as someone who studies the region and, and especially focuses on China um, is this misconception and often mislabeling that we do in the United States that actually kind of feeds the engine that China's running on and that is often referencing China or Chinese as opposed to saying the CCP. Now the main issue behind that is the Chinese love it um, and by Chinese it's my own mistake right the CCP love when Western countries do that because the point is, is that we're not targeting the government that is making the decisions, that is making policy choices. We're targeting a group of people. Um, and that's something that we, in my opinion, have failed to recognize in our foreign policy and in our posturing is that by when we do that, the CCP simply turns around to its own people and says, see, the Western world doesn't want us to succeed. They want to target you. The Chinese, they want to target our culture, they want to target our people. In reality, we have nothing really against the Chinese people. Our issue is primarily with their government. And as somebody who has friends who are from China and things like this, it's often point of discussion where, you know, there, there's a little bit of tension where they think that we want to go on the attack against their culture. The reality is um, through our media, through the way that we present it, that's exactly how it looks. When in reality, us as Western countries or as the United States, we want to target the CCP. And so I think especially in matters like this, the CCP actually gains the upper hand. Um, as you guys pointed out, there's not a lot of backing behind us. It's just mostly the United States and close allies that have the wherewithal and the intelligence to know um, or intelligence backing to simply say, yeah, this is actually going on um, and we're not going to be uh, associated with it. For China and for the Chinese, that simply only bolsters their forms of nationalism. And I would be very interested, uh, and I think it would be very important to see um, some studies on China. Um, you know, it's gonna be very hard. They have a very large population and, and it's kind of hard to gain this information, but the growing sense of nationalism in that country, especially when a lot of countries begin to target and use media in that wrong way, 
you actually emphasize their message as opposed to diminish it. Um, so there is some strength to doing a diplomatic boycott so long as you're doing it appropriately and properly. And that's something that the United States, in my opinion, really needs to refocus uh, and step up its game. Uh, otherwise, we're only just feeding that engine. Um, there was another point that I was, oh, and this is kind of to the, to the smaller nations uh, and developing nations that China likes to focus on. Um, sadly, in my opinion, we're not gonna get them on board. And I think you guys started to highlight this and that's primarily because the fact that China isn't the Soviet Union. During the Cold War it was very easy for Western countries to kind of boycott the Soviet Union or get others to boycott them because at that point in time, you either relied on Western countries or you relied on the Soviet Union. Um, and it was very easy for Western countries to simply say, we don't need anything from the Soviet Union. We don't really trade with them. We don't, you know, there's nothing of, uh, of heavy involvement between the two countries. So it's easy to put that wall up. In a globalized world, and especially in today's market, everything to a lesser extent revolves around China. Um, even for our own country as the United States, there is so much that we have invested in China and China in us for us to simply go, we're putting up the wall, we're cutting it off, hurts us too, uh, in a very negative sense. Um, so with those smaller countries, not only is an economic issue for us to simply go to them and say, hey, don't do this. They're gonna look and say, well, we can't because we're not gonna risk um, loss of investment or loss of economic ties because you have a problem with something. But China is also a, uh, and by China, again, I mean the CCP, uh, their foreign ministry have become masters at turning the lens around. So if you often look at the dialogues even between the United States and China um, and the CCP's foreign ministry, when we point something out, they love to point at our history and point something out that we've done wrong. So we come after them for Xinjiang, you know, and this is, uh, it's not 100% accurate, right? But, you know, China might look at us and say, well, where are the Native Americans? And it, it kind of, it just almost defeats and deflates the entire argument. And that's exactly what China does in these lesser countries where if lesser countries start to look and say, yeah, we actually agree with the United States. You guys shouldn't be doing those things in, in your own country or, you know, we don't, we don't want to be associated with that. China's become masters at looking at them and saying, oh, well, let's look at your own government. How much did you embezzle this month? Because we already know. Or what human rights atrocities did your government already commit? Um, and already it's a losing battle, right? We've already lost that group of people because they already fear the threat of political illegitimacy coming downward from China and threatening their own position and their own legitimacy within their own country. I'll add my points there. Yeah, so um, Josh, I think we found out what your New Year's resolution is, is to not say Chinese anymore. <laughs> um, yeah, I wanna say two things uh, going off of what Lola and Josh said. Um, I think, uh, Lola, you, you just brought something to my mind um, with Ecuador is that not only could this be bad, you know, for us, um, but also the, the countries that are, you know, we're trying to win, us and, and the CCP uh, are, are both vying for the same countries, um, you know, in, in the global south, in the, these developing countries. So I think by not having a completely unilateral, um, uh, 
sorry, multilateral uh, boycott, I think we run a serious risk of alienating those countries. Um, and even some of our allies, like France, who's not um, participating at this point in the diplomatic boycott, our relationship with France is not at its best right now, um, you know, with AUKUS and, and stuff. So I think it's, it's really important and it's a, a kind of dangerous situation to alienate those countries and say, hey, we don't care that you're not participating in this boycott. We're going to go ahead with it anyway. If you want to go, you know, run to China for, um, you know, investment, then go ahead. Uh, and then, Josh, you brought up, of course, the, you know, opportunity for reprisals from China, you know, economic, human rights, everything. Uh, you know, I think it has another dangerous potential to be an escalator. Um, you know, China boycotts our next Olympics and then we boycott their next. And, you know, there's other things they start doing and we start doing in return uh, that just runs the risk of, uh, you know, kind of escalating the, the conflict between China, which is not something that I think the U.S. should be starting. I think it's also a situation where um, the United States needs to look at, I think going off of that, when you're looking at the sort of cost benefit analysis of, of, of a boycott or something like that, you have to think, all right, what am I reasonably gonna get out of this? And what, what you're reasonably gonna get out of a boycott is punching them in the eye and saying, yeah, screw you, you suck, right? We don't wanna go to your stupid games. Like we don't wanna go to your play date, which is essentially what the boycotts, what, what the Olympics are. They're one big play date where people come around that, Throw, throw, throw things around, swim in some water, then they go home, right? And when you pull it down to its fundamentals. And so the question is, did the, does the United States want to say, mm, screw you, I'm not coming to your house, right? My mom said no, and and then take its bat and ball and go home. Or does it want to do, or does it want to try to do another tact of giving China a black eye? Because the, the boycott isn't, isn't the only one, right? There's been plenty of, plenty of talk of saying, no, don't boycott, send your athletes to China, beat the snot out of them on their home tur turf, and then come home. Right. And you could tell when we just had the Olympics in where was it, Tokyo over the last uh, last summer, um, where the United States led in the medal count. We led in the medal count and the, the gold medal count and both. Hello, Gato down there. Hello, little kitty. Um, and we beat the heck out of the Chinese. We were the number one in medal count like we usually always are in every one of these Olympics. Usually by sheer numbers, so the kind of the law of large numbers is in our favor because we send a lot, you know, these massive team of athletes that when you're competing in every event, you're bound to win a bunch of medals. Um, but we usually do win the most amount of gold and we usually do the most medals overall. And to go to China, to their home turf, beat them, right, get the most amount of medals, take the most gold from them and go home could send a very different message and a just as effective one to say, we don't need to get involved in petty nonsense. We don't need to get involved in silly boycotts. We're so confident in our own existence that we're going to go beat you, go home and not think about it again. Right. And you can see there was some there was a reaction from Chinese diplomats on social media when the United States was winning uh, the Olympic medal count last time. It was just unhinged. I mean, these diplomats were like, this is absurd. This is because the Americans have rigged it. People were talking about, oh, well, if you combine the medal count of, you know, the, you know, the China, Taiwan, and Hong Kong, then it's larger. And you're like, well, how does that make any sense? I guess if you combine, you know, the medal count of you know, the United States, Puerto Rico, and Italy, I guess, you know, we're, we're, we're still number one, right? So all that, all that silly nonsense. And it makes the Chinese look like the petulant ones when it's like, hey, it's just sports. Like, what are you so mad about? 
like it, it has a different effect of diminutiveness, right? When you say we're going to come to your home turf, we're going to beat you, or we're going to come home. It would be like winning, you know, winning the World Series in, on, in an away game in game seven. It's like, damn, we came to your house and beat you, right? I, I bet if you ask any Red Sox fan, would they rather beat the heck out of the Yankees in Yankee Stadium or Fenway? A lot of them are going to say Yankee Stadium because they want to rub it in the face of the Yankee fans, right? And that's exactly what we'd be doing on a large scale with the Olympics. If you went, you beat them, and then you 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 come home and you celebrate your inherent superiority because you're the greatest country ever and you beat the Chinese on their home turf. Um, and the Chinese have been investing significant money and resources into their Olympic program, just just their their sports, right? It's it, for the long time the United States was the big dogs. We invested gazillions of dollars right into it. Our athletes were the well most well trained. They had access to every medical care you know training facility that you could possibly imagine. And they went, they'd win, and we'd be proud of it. And China looked around and said, hmm, we don't want to be necessarily viewed as this third world country of, you know, gazillion people. Let's, let's invest. And so they invested in their Olympic program, and it, it made some serious strides. And now every time they're usually, you know, two or three on the medal count behind the U.S. and Russia. Um, and so, you know, they're, they're, they're on their way up. And to, to sort of push back on that, just by virtue of our own athletic sort of prowess would send a different message and it would be just it would be a different kind of embarrassing for the united states to come to their home turf beat them force their population to watch us beat them and then come home uh, i think that 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 would people are also not i don't think people are fully considering that it's not a binary choice between you know totally coming home leaving boycotting or some silly diplomatic boycott and full participation and tacit acceptance of everything the Chinese have ever done, right? And so, <laughs> and so I think that's the way I would view it, which is I think also it's, it, would be, it would be just as effective to go beat them, punch them in the face, and then come home and, and not, not give it a second thought and leave the Chinese and Chen Weihua on Twitter stewing in their, their bedrooms. You know, I think that is a great point to end on. Um, does anyone have any other closing remarks? I, I don't want to ruin the good ending, but I'll say something. Okay, go for it, Ben. Um, this just, for me, uh, it kind of bothers me. Um, in my mind, it just seems like another one of uh, the Biden administration's uh, kind of pointless virtue signaling, saying, hey, this is what we believe, just to let everyone know. You know, like we, we get it, do something. We want action um, instead of just kind of empty and, and vain comments. Um, and that's that's all I have to say. Uh, also, CJ's New Year's resolution is to uh, join a boxing gym. <laughs> um, I, I, I agree with you a bit, Ben, that it does feel like virtue signaling but I also don't really know what's to be done. Um, I mean, I, diplomatic boycotts have been happening or boycotts in general have been happening for a long time and in very few instances has tangible change actually happened from any of them. Um, in very few instances where the international community is mad about something, uh, very rarely does tangible change actually happen. 
uh, unless military action is taken. And then even then, if it's slightly delayed or if there's deliberation on it, it's, it's then even ineffective at that. So um, I, I just don't see any sort of any sort of practical reality for any sudden practical international response that will give the international community the sort of hopeful yay response that they want about getting any sort of response from China about, wow, great, the Uyghurs are no longer in concentration camps. Great, fabulous, the problem's over. I don't, I don't think that's happening anytime soon. So I think the boycott's as good as we're going to get for now. Well, uh, I guess I'll, I'll sum up my remarks after that one and just say, yeah, I think um, in summary, I think we all kind of agree that a diplomatic boycott is, isn't the best. Um, the reality can't really shift away from what's currently going on. And, and there is some travesty to that. But um, I think the one thing that we can take away from our Cold War reference is uh, a change in U.S. Uh, foreign policy and recognition that um, this is a, a, a similar game, not nearly the, the same game, but very similar in terms of the Cold War, where we can't um, expect immediate changes um, right away, right? And our, our responses to the things that Soviets would do during the Cold War, um, we had a much more nuanced and uh, proactive and long-term thinking game with our foreign policy and um, uh, even our national security. And I think that's the same thing we need to take with, with China. It's not a matter of things changing immediately or um, you diplomatically boycott the Olympics and then everything changes. No, it is a matter of posturing, it is a matter of knowing, okay, this is the first step. Um, and we need to be more calculated and, and thorough in our choices rather than it being a, uh, an afterthought of just simply saying, we don't agree with it, diplomatic boycott. Okay, well, how are we doing the diplomatic boycott? What is our end goal of doing the diplomatic boycott? Who's joining us? Um, and what's the next step after this? How do we continue this conversation? It's exactly what we did with the Soviets. And if anything, I think we've just highlighted uh, an aspect of US foreign policy that really needs to step up.